PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and display your photos in a flash-free, responsive website. Try one for free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com. Get our latest educational guides for free. PhotoShelter.com slash resources. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Alan Robayashi, broadcasting live from New York City, the home and worldwide headquarters of PhotoShelter.com. You are listening to episode 57 of the I Love Photography podcast for the second week in a row. I'm joined by my co-host, Fernando Gomez. Fernando, what's going on? How's it going, Alan? It's going well. We have a lot to talk about as usual. Let's start with this little treat of space. Let's do it. A lot of people know that uh, the New Horizons spacecraft traveled past Pluto, formerly known as the planet Pluto and now known as some celestial body Pluto, <laughs> got downgraded because of the size. Uh, but we found this little article here on Petapixel that talks about how dramatically the quality of images of Pluto has improved over the years. Now we're showing a photo right now of an image from 1996 compared to the closest flyby in 2015. You can see all of the things we're talking about today by going to the blog at blog.photoshelter.com where we'll have the links to the stories. But this is, this is crazy. The image on the left literally just looks like a Photoshop 3D render of a sphere mm. with some lighting sources. Yeah. And the 2015 image is... is Kind of stunning. And in this particular article on Petapixel, they just kind of show you uh, from 1994 what the Hubble telescope saw uh, and then kind of increasing but still very blurry resolution images of Pluto. And then finally in 2015, as New Horizons gets closer and closer, you see uh, a really blurry mess start to gain focus and a little more resolution. Yeah. The spacecraft got as close as, I can't remember, 750,000 uh, miles away, which is pretty darn close in uh, celestial terms. And even from, uh, you know, two days before the closest rendezvous, you know, here on July 11th, where it's, you start to see a lot of stuff on the surface, but then to July 13th, when you get the clearest view, it's dramatic. And a lot of people are commenting, well, it's just like photography in real life. You know, you got to get close up sometimes. There's no, yeah. there's no getting around that bush. I love this stuff. So cool. Yeah, like uh, Robert Kappa said, if your photo is not good enough, you're not close enough. There you go. I don't think we're getting any closer than that without crashing into the service, but that was pretty great. Yeah. And then speaking of, you know, galactic photography, you came across a little piece on wired.com by a photographer named Julian Mauve. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah, this is a, a fun little project that Julian did where he went over to the Grand Canyon and found these scenes that could look like they were Martian landscapes and photographed himself. And uh, I think it's his friend, I can't remember exactly, in, uh, in these most bizarre situations with the most over-the-top ludicrous um, spacesuits that are obviously not anything approved by NASA, but there's just uh, an idea of the <clears throat> yet to be discovered photographic realm of interplanetary <clears throat> explorations. We love the selfie stick. We love the jumping photo. So funny, got the iPad mini here, some sort of phablet <laughs> taking a photo. <laughs> yeah, these, this is a great, great little idea. And I, and I like the sort of uh, post 
processing effects to, to really make it look like the Martian planet, a little more reds in there. Yeah, they took out all the greens too in Photoshop yeah. and made it look like. Fantastic project. I wonder how they made those spacesuits. Can't be easy to do. Definitely not. <laughs> all right, Julian, we love it. Go to the next, go to Pluto next, my man. <laughs> that would be a trip. Um, speaking of the selfie stick, here's a, a, a little project by Luisa Dore and the artist Naveen Kala, uh, made in Hong Kong, and this is called the Self Promenade. And they went over to some area by the river, I guess it's between Hong Kong and Kowloon, um, where a lot of tourists hang out and where a lot of tourists apparently take a lot of selfies. And they did a really, really neat set of portraits of people just taking selfies. And I've always sort of been fascinated by taking photos of selfies. There's like a meta qual quality to that. But uh, they must have stood there for a long time to get this kind of really neat set of images here. Yeah, but you know, I think unfortunately, I feel like they probably did not stay there a long time because of the amount of selfies that were probably being taken on that. On that given day. On that given day, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's one photo that I think it's four girls or four or five girls lined up next to each other, all taking their own individual selfies, right. <laughs> which is just, you know, absurd. But I think that <clears throat> my uh, compatriot, I think he's Brazilian, did a really good job in uh, capturing these, this phenomena, this phenomenon, excuse me, of the selfie and also this new generation. I was in London this weekend and I was walking by Buckingham Palace and Big Ben and it was a, you know, it was a beautiful London Saturday. So there were mm -hmm. tons of tourists out and you wouldn't believe the number of selfie sticks and selfies going on. I mean, you, you, you would believe it because you see it everywhere, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it's always amazing to me that here's the one that you referenced five girls doing their own selfies. Uh, and then when I got on the plane yesterday to come back, the, the girl sitting next to me in the middle seat, uh, mm -hmm was taking a selfie of herself before takeoff. I, I think she was probably sending like a Snapchat or something to a friend. Uh -huh. um, but you know, she was, she was combing her hair out and making sure that it was perfect. And the, there was something so incredibly narcissistic and so contemporary about seeing that happen next to me on the plane. <laughs> yeah. Because really, really, do we really need to be doing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, that. it's a weird, it's a weird place. I think that we're finding ourselves in and I've, I just heard about this new social media Snapchat competitor type thing called Be Me. Yes. This guy called Casey Neistat. Yeah, big viral video photographer guy. Exactly, that guy. Um, and he's trying to challenge that idea of, well, he still wants you to document the moment and be and show everybody what you're doing, but he doesn't want your face to be in front of the camera. He doesn't want you to be concerned with how you look because once you put that, once you turn it on, it just takes a photo and you can't see it and it's just gone. That's an right. So this, uh, th that app that he created require, it uses the proximity sensor on the camera. So it requires you to put it up against your body. So you can't hold it away from your face for it to activate the camera. Yeah. And I guess in the snippet that I wrote, he wants you to be able to film, but he also wants you to enjoy with your own eyes. So you're not watching the event through the, through the phone, which I think is, <laughs> it's a, it's a great concept. Who knows whether it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. It's sad that it's come to that, that we need something else to take us away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so the woman next to me was combing her hair and here in the New York Times, the haggler who is kind of the consumer uh, affairs writer <laughs> went to go get a, 
passport photo taken uh, in Times Square at the Walgreens or the CVS or something. So he went into the photo booth and he took a photo and it cut the top of his head off, which is a no-no for passport photos. And so he went in again and he slouched down uh, in the photo booth and he took it again and it still cut his head off. So then he really, really slouched down. So, you know, he's like really just down in the seat and he took it again and it still cut his head off. So he said, what the heck is going on? So he writes to corporate, corporate doesn't respond. Then he writes to them again. And then finally they put him in touch with the creator of the photo booth. And it turns out that the photo booth has some sort of computer algorithm to determine where the head is, which kind of makes sense in that your passport photo has got to be tight and you want your head to be there. But for whatever reason, the passport photo was queuing off what it recognized to be hair on the top of your head. And when it didn't see that hair, it would just kind of chop, it would use the eyebrows and it would just kind of chop off the head. Uh, and so he talked to the, the guy who created the photo booth and he said, well, we only have one photo booth installed in the world and it's the one that you went to and it's never been an issue. I guess no bald people have ever gone in to get their passport photos or they just said, what the heck's going on and walked away. <laughs> But uh, all the more reason to get a human to take your photo. And that's what ended up happening. The Walgreens staff <laughs> that's right. brought their camera over and took it. For, <laughs> I thought that was pretty great. But so it, the, the, the computers haven't won yet. They haven't. And it's, but it's something that the way that photography reacts with different people is something that comes up now and again. And I think recently there was an article that I read, I think on the New Yorker or New York Times, about how the Kodachrome film was not, it was made for lighter pigment skin. That's right. So whenever they would, whenever darker pigments would be photographed in it, it would just, it would lose all detail and it would be completely, you know, dark and you would lose so much of the image, but, and people couldn't figure out why, but it's because of the chem, the chemical components in the actual film was catered to the white consumers of that time. Yeah, they had a reference image that they used for developing, which was a Kodak employee. Yeah. And I can't remember what her name was, but they call them like Nancy cards or something like that. <laughs> over the years, they would always have kind of a you know, relatively fair-skinned woman as a part of these cards. Um, it's just so interesting. And then, uh, yeah, obviously, as, as photography spread and you had different colors of skin, that, that, that became an issue. But yeah. It's so, so interesting. You just think you just hold your phone up and you think that's a photo, but there's obviously a lot more that goes into that, whether it's digital or, or analog photography. Uh, and the same would be true if you were photographing things like wildlife because, well, birds come in white and black and brown <laughs> and everything in between. And this uh, week we have the 2015 Audubon Photo Awards. Um, and they're lovely. Here's Melissa Gruz. Uh, this is a grand prize winner here. Deservedly okay. so too. Yeah, a great egret. And I don't, I don't even re. I can't even understand how some of these photos are taken. The, the, the this one, I guess. I mean, it looks like it's done in a studio, but no, I don't, yeah, I don't know that it was. Yeah, I don't think it was either. I think she was actually outside. Maybe she, maybe she burned things down a little bit because. Uh, th this is in journalism, and so I think they, they have a little more lead way, leeway in processing the I photos, think. but really, really incredible, incredible photos here. 
And you know, the one thing as I, as I get older and I view more photos, the stuff that you see as a kid in National Geographic and you just say, okay, somebody went out there and they took a photo. And then as you get older and more experienced, you're like, wow, how the heck did they go to Antarctica in the middle of the, of the winter and hang out in a little bluff for three months straight and not go insane and take these photos, but really, really great stuff. Yeah, and I think that if you look at the other uh, the other winners, I think this one definitely deserved to be the grand prize winner. And it, yeah, and she faced some challenges. I think she mentions that she uh, it was a really low light conditions, and she was trying to capture them in flight because they're apparently very beautiful when they fly. But uh, she couldn't get enough of a shutter speed, a quick enough shutter speed to do that. So then she focused her attention on the on the birds that were already landed and grounded, and and she got this incredibly majestic and detailed with just enough color and like a beautiful composition. Yeah. It's a great shot. Have you ever tried any wildlife photography? I have not aside from iPhone shots of squirrels. The first time I came to New York, <laughs> that seems to be the thing to do when people come to New York, they're like, Oh my God, squirrels. We don't have them anywhere in the world. That's so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. Congratulations to Melissa and everyone else who won. Uh, Amy Schumer's been in the news a lot. She has her own show. She's a comedian. She has her own show that's done some really, really great work. And so here on the current issue of GQ, the music photographer, rock photographer, Mark Seliger, who's done some really, really great images, has photographed her as Princess Leia. And these images that we'll scroll through created kind of a ruckus because they didn't get the approval of Lucasfilm. And because they're a little raunchy, Lucasfilm was not so pleased here. But here's uh, Princess Leia in a taxi cab with Chewbacca, C-3PO, and it looks like Yoda might be driving the cab. Not, not clear there. Just hanging out. Just hanging out. Uh, here is how to best describe this. Uh, she's using a lightsaber uh, to make a lewd gesture. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with that. That would not uh, go down well in any situation. If no, no, not really. <laughs> Here is uh, Princess Leia topless in bed with uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO. And a burner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the hell is I that? I forget the burner. And this looks like they're at one of these uh, typical hogs and heifers type bars in New York City. Princess Leia is holding a shot while dancing on the bar uh, while some bikers are hanging out with the rest of the gang. Um, just... Really ridiculous. And then the last one is sort of kind of a Rockettes stormtroopers with Princess Leia wearing a little leotard. Um, kind of different from the normal Mark Seliger images. He, he, he doesn't really do a ton of humorous images. And I think he's most often found doing studio stuff rather than sort of natural life stuff. So that was kind of nice to see. Yeah, this I, is, I, I laughed when I saw these images. Yeah, these are fun. And I'm, it surprises me a little bit that Lucas, well, at first I, would, I didn't know what the copyright situation with these photos were, but I think that they would, they should appreciate this because with the new upcoming Star Wars film, this would definitely just drive more publicity towards them. So it's yeah, a, yeah. It's a win-win on that front. You, you almost wonder whether they just had to say something because some of the photos were a little risque and they know that they're, they're, their uh, customers tend to be, you know, everyone, little kids. Some of their customers are little kids. Probably. So maybe it was just kind of a cover your ass uh, statement. Might have been, yeah. Uh, enjoyed them, enjoyed them. Oh, the other thing that I, I noticed a lot was he's got this uh, 
overhead or side light and it looks like they pumped a little bit of fog into the room. So I don't know if you can see that sort of ambiance right at the very top of the image. And then when, we, when they are in the bar and she's dancing on top of the bar, they do the same sort of effect off to the left of the image where there's some particulate in the air that just gives it a little bit of ambiance. Kind of like that, kind of like that. The royal family in the UK had their photo taken by Mario Testino. He's a well-known portrait photographer. And over on The Guardian, Jonathan Jones, who's one of the critics, really lambasted the images as being a lot of fake PR with their pearly white teeth and kind of making it look like the perfect life. And he also comments on this royal portrait down below that has everybody perfectly dressed, all white teeth. Uh, everyone's looking straight at the camera. You, you just kind of have to believe that this is a composite image because how hard is that to get everyone smiling queen <laughs> at the same time? So let's assume it's a composite image. Yeah. And he references some of the old paintings and whatnot uh, of yesteryear when the artist would show a little more of the, the tension of real life and whatnot. You know, I read this article thinking that I was going to agree with the writer. Mm -hmm. And in the end, what I found myself doing is, you know, when you have a photo taken of yourself, whether it's for your high school uh, yearbook or your Facebook profile or your wedding photo, you want to look your best. This is your public photo to people. What, what, why is there, why should we portray realism in this type of photo? It's a PR shot. Yeah, I think that's a point that he might have missed in that this is, you know, England's royalty. They're not going to allow this realistic portrayal of them because that won't, you know, that won't excite, that won't portray them as who they want to be portrayed as, is perfect white smiles and everything's beautiful family when really there's, there's probably so much behind the curtains that we don't know about. And it would be amazing to have a realistic look at that. That could be a fantastic photo series, but that's feasibly never going to happen right? in right. terms of simple PR and they're just public image. The, so, the author also referenced the fact that Testino had taken these photos of Princess Diana here and uh, how, you know, and this was maybe a few months or a few years before she died. And there was a lot going on in her life because the prince and her weren't getting along. Um, and he kind of says, like, this is a bullshit image. But, but again, if I princess die, even if I have a lot of strife in my life, why would I want to be portrayed that way in real life? Unless I was an artist and that was my goal. She's a public figure. Mm -hmm. She's got to show up at charities and whatnot. She's got to be a happy face. Yeah. It's not realistic to think that we could see the reality behind them. Well, other than the fact that it, it looks like it's composited, I had no problems with these images. Yeah, they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> we talked last week about the onerous photo contracts that a lot of bands are putting out. In particular, we mentioned Taylor Swift. We had a little, uh, a brief conversation about what photographers are doing. Uh, so finally here in Quebec, the newspaper Le Soleil decided we're not gonna sign this thing Instead, we're going to send an illustrator, Francis Descharnay, to go cover the concert and we'll publish the illustrations <laughs> in, in lieu of signing the contract. And you know what? They're kind of fun. 
They are. They are nice. Um, and, I, and I like that little just a jab at the music industry. Yeah. Yeah. He's got David Grohl who broke his foot while in concert. So he's been wearing a cast. Mm -hmm. uh, his hair is flying. People look like <laughs> people look like they're having a good time in the illustration because they see a lot of hands raised. Um, what, what to say? You know, uh, I Chris wrote me a little note. Chris O'Young is the bro brother of Todd O'Young. They both do a lot of concert photography. And Chris's comment was, you know, a lot of the regular photographers who work for mainstream publications are never asked to sign these things. It's usually the, the first time people who are carrying an iPhone in um, and they work for publications you never heard of. Um, and the PR people just want to control that type of photographer who shows up at the concert, hmm. which... You know that I, I can buy. You know, and 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 I understand the tension too between the, you know, the official photographers and the non-official photographers, or the press photographers and the quote official photographers, etc. I think there, I think there's a little more nuance to the issue than was for, first portrayed, in the media. There is, but I think to Chris's comment, um, that's how a lot of music photographers get their start. They're not, they don't, they don't, they're not born professional concert photographers, but they'll go to a concert one day and take a camera and start playing around. I think that's how, if I'm not mistaken, how Todd got his start too. Mm -hmm. And he, and you go to the concert with your camera and you turns out you really like what you're shooting and you want to keep shooting it. And to limit that, to put boundaries on that would be constricting and it, it would probably jeopardize the music photography business and the growth of its photographers in the long run. I or, I mean, do you think that's also a case where, you know, you consider that to be part of your apprenticeship uh, in the same way that, you know, a lot of photographers assist. Uh, a lot of younger photographers assist established photographers. A lot of the younger photographers are actually the one that are lighting and taking the photo, but the older photographer gets the credit. It's hmm. that sort of the same analogy. Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't know either. <laughs> My experience is limiting in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Ellen Mark shot this iconic photo of a nine-year-old hanging out in a uh, pool, a blow-up pool with another girl. The nine-year-old girl is uh, smoking a cigarette and blowing smoke into the frame and standing there like she's about 30. Yeah. And NPR did a little piece. It's a little bit older, maybe a couple of weeks old. NPR did a little piece on whatever happened to this girl, um, kind of uh, coincident with Mary Ellen Mark passing. And they tracked her down, uh, which is pretty incredible. Turns out that uh, this woman, Amanda, is now 34 years old, Amanda Marie Ellison, uh, and lives in... Lenoir, North Carolina, and she still remembers taking that photo. She thought that this was going to be her ticket out of the kind of really crappy poverty, abuse situation, drug-fueled situation that she was in. None of that actually occurred. She's still kind of battling addiction and whatnot, but she remembers Mary Ellen Mark being like a very, very cool chick and she always wondered what happened to Mary Ellen Mark. It's, the other thing that I love about it is uh, th this woman Amanda had didn't know the photographer's name. 
didn't know anything about Marilyn Mark being kind of an iconic photographer. It was just like, oh, this lady showed up. She was respectful to me. I thought this might be good for me. I wonder what happened to her. Yeah. Yeah, I think she got, uh, Mary got sent there to photograph the, I think you mentioned the, the bad situation in terms of school kids being raised back poorly and under the terrible circumstances. And it's, and this photo, it shows all of that, you know, this depressing angle, this, this rickety pool, the girl smoking the cigarettes with fake nails and makeup, and she's, she's nine years old. And it's even worse that nothing has changed, it would seem, according to her life right now. Nothing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she wasn't able to get out of the situation. And I think that that speaks volumes to how much still needs to be done in terms of... Um, raising America's lower class and bettering the school systems and all of that. And I think that the, it's a powerful photograph in many, many ways. It's funny. You could just sit and stare at this photo and deconstruct it for an hour. Just the, just compositionally, all the right things that are going on in this image. Um, you know, the light in the dark, there's a shaft of light behind, but it doesn't really distract the, the roundness of the pool that contrasts the, the darkness of the grain of the grass behind foreground, midground, background. I mean, it's just an amazing photo in so many respects. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's, it's really good. And I'm glad that they tracked her down. I was, I would have been curious to see what happened to her. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Always wonder what happens to people. Yeah. You never know that context. Yeah. Afterwards. Yeah. Speaking of old photos over on Buzzfeed, Vintage snapshots of Italy in the 1980s by the photographer Charles H. Traub. I love, love, love kind of old photos because I think eh, even, even more than just sort of the nostalgia that it builds, there's something always very, very interesting about it. And particularly when you're looking at a different country. You know, here in the U.S., we always laugh at guys wearing Speedos, but obviously in Europe and and Brazil and other places, that's mm -hmm. just what people wear. I mean, this is just the way they dress. So now you have these little girls and boys trying to be like adults, hanging out in their little swimsuits, people walking around. And that, you know, th this might be a, a bizarre comment, but the one thing that always strikes me from seeing movies and photos from the eighties is how thin people are. <laughs> you know, it's always, and, and, and it's not, you know, these are street photos. And so it's not like he picked who's going to be in the photos, mm. just the average person in these photos. You know, we know that the weight gain, particularly in the U S has been significant. It's just funny to see kind of what I, you know, I grew up in the eighties. So I consider this to be sort of normal. Yeah. He, Charles is a, does a really good job at capturing these crazy expressions and really, really weird quirky moments but in a beautiful classic photographic uh, street photography way um i actually had the the honor of spotting some of his images for a show he had in i think germany last year or oh really yeah he's a uh, he works at at, at sva and a friend of mine is his assistant so then he needed an extra hand an extra hand in spotting a lot of his images so i got to look up close wow. at 300 percent at a lot of them uh, and it's just been really fun to see how his work carries over in all these different projects that he's done. And you can definitely see his influences and the similarities between where, whereas if he's shooting portraits on the street or if he's capturing these candid moments mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and his sense of color has always been, or looks to always have been 
phenomenal. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Cause I think a lot of people have a conception of black and white photography being, I mean, street photography being black and white. Mm -hmm. And then you see people like Bruce Gilden who are throwing cameras in front of people. And there's a very, very gritty sort of a nasty look to the images. And these are, these are just lovely. Love the floating watermelons. Yeah. Some great, great images. They're nice uh, suspended moments in action. Yeah. yeah. With yeah. Nice, a nice pattern play on that one that you just landed on and his, there was the a shirt. shirt and the castle or something behind in front of him. Yeah, really, really nice stuff. Would love to see an exhibit of all of these Im images in, oh, in New York. A, That'd be wonderful. Yeah. We always end on a, a funny or uplifting note. This is kind of a departure because what we're looking at today is, well, it rounds it out because we started talking about Pluto and now we're going to talk about images of the Earth. Japan launched a new satellite. Uh, it's called the Himawari 8. It's a weather satellite. It's uh, in geosynchronous orbit, so it never moves. It's always a certain distance away from the Earth, so the Earth just sort of rotates under it. And it captures an image of the Earth every 10 minutes. And I gotta tell you, here's a time-lapse photo. And of course, since we're watching it on Google Hangouts, it never looks as nice uh, as it does when you go to the link. But it is kind of an amazing, it's an amazing <laughs> photo. The detail and seeing uh, the, the night and day and seeing, two typhoons kind of rolling around in the Pacific uh, and other storm systems and clouds moving around. This, I, I found this to be very uplifting as a photo for some reason. It is, and it's, and it's easy to forget the circumstances that these photos are being taken in. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. what, what we've done and what we've achieved, not we, me, we but you know, what a lot of <laughs> other people have done to <laughs> get this, camp, this, this satellite and this technology and to bring back these images, these fantastically beautiful images of where we're from and where we are. It's, you know, from the beginning, from that first photo of the, the blue, the blue planet or the blue yeah. taken from outside from the spaceship. And now we have these extremely high quality images of our earth every 10 minutes. It's, it's uplifting for sure. You know, the other thing is a couple of years ago, I went to the National Geographic Photography Conference down in D.C. And they had one of the speakers was a guy who designed cameras for spaceships. Wow. And we're so used to this very, very rapid iteration of sensors and resolution. So, you know, the Canon, the newest Canon is now 50 megapixels that you can get for, I don't know, $5,000 or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but for for. Uh, Photographic equipment in space, they've got to certify and harden it from all of this radiation and, and whatnot. So the resolution of those things is typically, you know, three generations behind what we get on Earth. And, you know, they're, they're planning this thing three years in advance before it can even launch. So who yeah. knows what the actual resolution of this camera is. It's, it's undoubtedly much lower than your average DSLR that you get nowadays. And yet you get these images and it's really, really cool. So it turns out it's really not about the megapixels. No, it, it's not at all. And I think that when we looked at the Pluto photos before, it was great to see that in the days before it made its final approach, the image was still as pixelated as it was 10 years ago. So it was more of a matter of physically getting closer to your subject 
than the technology being better or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. more pixels. It was literally a proximity, a question of proximity. Well, if there's any images that you need to see from this week's show, I think that that last one of the uh, Japanese satellite showing you the Earth uh, will give you some goosebumps, if nothing else. <laughs> and with that, we, we've come to another end of uh, another show, episode 57. Fernando, thanks for joining us. We'll see you uh, next week. Thank you. So, Fernando, uh, this is Alan Murabayashi signing off with another episode of I Love Photography Live. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.